you will please find a copy of God's Word and turn it to Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1,252. If you're turning there, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that you would uh, send the Spirit to help us understand your word this morning, Lord, that it may be uh, illuminating for us in our hearts and our minds, Lord, so we may find it precious, Lord, more precious than gold and silver, Lord. And I pray that you would send the Spirit to empower Empower Parker in his message this morning, Lord, that you would be with him, that you would be with us all, with open ears and open hearts. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Thanks, brother. You know, every time I ask Kyle to read, I always forget that I do so. And he always reminds me as he's walking up to read uh, before I get here. So, Kyle, thank you for, uh, for reading for us. You know, a lot of times we forget just how good we have it. A lot of times we forget just how good we have it. One of the things I'm most looking forward to about this trip that we're going on, this mission trip, is especially for the children, uh, as we go to a third world uh, region of Mexico. Not all of Mexico is third world, but, but certainly the region that we're going to is, is a pretty um, impoverished area. You know, in my experience on these kinds of trips, that the allure of the latest gadget or toy or status symbol, th those things seem to, to fade as you, you drive across the border and their children, uh, you know, along the bridge with open bags just hoping you'll throw money to them. Now, that, that's actually a really complicated situation because a lot of times they're more or less owned by others who will take all of that money. I mean, the, the whole thing is just its very complicated. I, I'm looking forward to my children and the other children on this trip seeing that not everybody lives like we do in Bruton, Alabama. In this way, it's going to serve in two distinct ways. One is a, a warning, and the second is a reminder. Um, you know, it, it's a warning that we need to be on lookout in our own hearts that we think that as we live in Bruton, Alabama, that that's the normal way everybody lives around the world. 
right? It's a warning to us to, to say, okay, where are, what are the lies that we have, um, we have bought into as we see our brothers and sisters in Christ living in an impoverished area who are joyful in serving the Lord? It's a warning. Okay, maybe, maybe I need to kind of rethink things in my own heart. But at the same time, it's a reminder of, wow, the Lord has blessed us so greatly, and we shouldn't forget that. Paul gives to the Colossian church and to us in this text a warning and a reminder. It seems that there are false teachers who have really plausible, really good-sounding arguments, and they're promising apparently some pretty amazing stuff. And their teaching was alluring. But Paul warns them and us about it, lest they and we get taken away by heresy held captive. So it's a warning, be on your guard, but it's also a reminder. It's a reminder of just how good they and we have it in Christ. That in Christ we have everything we need for life and godliness. And so this morning we want to look at this text and this rubric of, of a warning, of be on the lookout, and a reminder, let me tell you, remind you about what all Christ has done for you. And in really as we are reminded of these things, it helps us to be on guard that we can see the counterfeit for what it is because we know the real thing so well. The main warning is found in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul uses some really stark language here, and apparently he thinks the danger that is facing the Colossian church of, of bad, false doctrine is, is a pretty... Um, pretty significant danger. Uh, in fact, the, the, the idea he uses here that's translated with this word, take you captive, it puts into image someone not just being taken prisoner, but led away in chains into slavery for the rest of his or her life. God calls us to live in freedom, and, and while no doubt these false teachers promise a lot of things, what they are offering in the end only led to spiritual slavery and a loss of the experience of the freedom that they or we have in Christ. You know, during the days of uh, when ships were powered by the wind, it was common for pirate ships to disguise themselves. And it was fairly easy to disguise a, a sailing ship because a lot of times a pirate ship was a merchant ship that had been captured. Uh, they would cut holes in the side so you could put cannons through it and Lo and behold, you have a pirate ship. So what they would do is they would take strips of canvas and paint them and put them over the gun ports. And so from a distance, it looked just like any other merchant ship. And by the time that a different merchant ship got close enough to it and the canvas was taken away and the gun ports were exposed, it was too late and they were taken captive. You know, that, that is how it is with, with false doctrine, with heretical views, is that uh, it doesn't normally come with a sign that says, hey, hey, believe me, and it'll lead you to spiritual death. It's often much more subtle than that. You know, I, I can see a lot of times that some of these texts, you wonder, how does this apply to us and, and false doctrine and, and false teachers? Um, I, I've, I've gotten permission to share this example, uh, and it shows how actually bad doctrine, false false views, heresy, 
And not just things we differ about, okay? We're not talking about who gets baptized. That's not the kind of level of, or how you baptize. That's not the level of what we're talking about here. We're talking about things that gut the gospel. That's, that's what we're talking about. But a small church especially must be on its guard. Uh, remember, Paul is writing to a small church in a small town. And so this is perhaps a very apt warning for us. So our presbytery is involved with planting churches in a country that has never, ever had a Presbyterian church, ever, in all of history. I'm not going to tell you which one it is, because you might be able to figure out who these churches are if you really desired to. Um, but the name of the first church that was planted was the first Presbyterian church of insert country, right? The first Presbyterian church. And y'all, things are going great. Well, they were. About five, six years ago, we commissioned this, this pastor to go and plant this church. And he and his family, the Lord has blessed them so greatly in this country that they have planted two other churches. And so in five years, we've gone from zero to three Presbyterian churches in this very dark country. But things are upside down right now. Because there was a group of people who joined the two churches that were planted who brought in some really bad theology, something called the, the federal vision, which, which, if you want to look it up, it guts basically our justification before God. Now, it sounds really plausible, and, it, and it's very reformed, but it guts the good news of Jesus. And what has happened is these two other churches have now pulled away from the first church, have left the PCA, and have joined another denomination, and there's such animosity from those two churches towards their mother church, that it's almost toxic. That's what Paul is concerned about. Be on your guard. Beware, lest you be taken captive, led into slavery by human philosophy, by human tradition, by things not of Christ. He says, don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, he's not talking about you shouldn't read Greek philosophers. That's not what he's talking about here. Uh, in Greek, the word philosophy can be used in a lot of different ways. Here, he's talking about any teaching that presents itself as deep and enlightened, sometimes old, sometimes new, but in reality is a lot like that apple that Snow White ate. It looks great on the outside, but it's deadly on the inside. Instead of being based on the Word of God, it's based on human tradition. Now, tradition in and of itself is not bad. But the tradition he has in view here is something that is based on human understanding, wisdom, and insight, not from the Lord. But the reality here is that there's, there's something that is deeper. And it's not just human tradition. It's not just a misunderstanding of texts that we all read. Rather, there's a demonic force that is led these false teachers to do what they're doing in the Colossian church. It says that they should be aware of these things according to the elemental spirits of the world. What, is, what does that mean? Well, the commentators disagree. But it's clear, though, from the context that there were spiritual forces of evil, demonic activity at work behind these traveling teachers. You know, there are three main ways that Satan will attack a congregation, a small church and a small town. Three main ways. The first is moral failure of the leaders. Pray for your pastor, for his family, 
for your elders and for your deacons, that the Lord would grant us holiness and purity, strength in the face of temptation. It's the number one way that, that Satan will seek to pull down a church. The second, though, is division and conflict. But the third, and it's often involved with the first two, is bad theology and teaching. You know, just because someone teaches on television or has written a best-selling book doesn't mean that they should necessarily be trusted. One of my favorite pastimes is to go through the Christian section of Books A Million. And I like to take the good books, you know, C.S. Lewis and these guys, and I put them in front of the bad books so that people can't find the bad books. I haven't been run out yet. Satan is happy to play the long game. Just, how look, at, look, just look, look at how many churches have bought into the plausible arguments, right? The human tradition concerning the confusion of gender in our culture. That's straight up Satan right there. That's what that is. Now, it didn't start last year. Let's, let's talk about how this happened. It didn't start last year. Satan's very happy to play the long game. It's his best game. It didn't even begin a couple decades ago. I think you can trace it immediately, if we can say immediately, back to the 1920s when there was a, a huge movement away from the infallibility of God's Word in mainline Protestant denominations. But even that was based on what was called Romantic philosophy that was in the 19th century. In 19th century, Romantic philosophy was a reaction to Enlightenment philosophy of the 18th century. It's been a long time coming. You know, you don't... Have you ever seen pictures, videos of when they're doing sea trials of new aircraft carriers? The new Gerald Ford, the, the largest aircraft carrier ever built. You should check it out. And you can see that when they do a test to see how quickly they can turn the thing. Now, when you're moving that size of a ship, it's pretty fast. But in reality, it's really slow. You would think they're not going to be able to dodge anything. You don't move a ship immediately. You do it by degrees. And Satan's very happy to move the needle by degrees. Be on guard. Beware. Lest we be taken captive by bad theology. The biggest issue here is that this false teaching was not according to Christ. You know, if any ministry or church or sermon isn't ultimately about Jesus, then it's no longer Christian. That's the ministry of the church, is to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Now, the Word of God has implications for every area of our life with some great practical wisdom, and we should study all of those things. But in the end, our hope is in Jesus and in no one else. So there's this warning in verse 8, and, and there's, there's a reminder in verses 9 through 15. Look at 9 through 10. For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. You know, in these two verses, Paul again tells us about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ and for our salvation because Jesus is fully God. Why would we look to these other things when Jesus is God? There's nothing lacking in Jesus. Anytime we say something of God, it is true of Jesus. God made the heavens. Jesus did. God founded the seas. Jesus did. God made man and every living creature. Jesus did. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Jesus is all those things. Why? Jesus is God. 
Why then do we look for deeper meanings, hidden truths, and vain human tradition apart from the source of all of our blessings, the Lord Jesus Christ? More than that, the text says that we have been filled in Him, meaning that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 1, is already ours. The answer then to growing spiritually, to growing deeper in the Lord, is not to look outside of Christ, but to look deeper into Christ. He is the one whom we will study and worship and glorify for all of eternity. And so it's a good thing to start the pattern now. Paul continues in verses 11 through 12 about how we have a new spiritual condition. We read, In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. These are two tough verses. Um, what do we understand from this verse? Let me make a few observations. First, we receive new hearts. Now, you don't find that word heart here in this text, but that's the Old Testament background. In the Old Testament, the sign of circumcision was an important sacrament that pointed to the need of God to do something to the heart. It symbolized the cutting away of sin, and it was a remarker that someone belonged to the covenant people of God. God has always made promises to His people and to their children. In the Old Testament, that sign, the sign of those promises, the sign and seal, was circumcision. Now, we're not entirely sure why Paul brings up circumcision here, but if what's going on here is what was going on in Galatia, then it seems like these new teachers were coming in and saying, you know, Jesus is probably enough for salvation, probably. But in order to be a real Christian, you need to adopt a few more things. These Gentile Christians had not been circumcised. And so they were probably saying, hey, real Christians are circumcised. And by that, obeying all the Jewish law. Do you know what Paul says to that? He says, you have already been circumcised. You don't need circumcision. You've already been circumcised. But he's talking not about physical circumcision, but about spiritual circumcision, that done by Jesus himself. What, what does that mean? It means that Jesus changed their hearts. I remember telling someone not long ago that was having a hard day that only Jesus could change this person's heart and mine. And this happens in salvation, right? We, we receive new hearts. Our old one is taken away. We'll get to that in a minute. We'll talk about it in a minute. But, but even in, as, we, as we walk with Jesus, right? Accountability partners are so helpful. Have one. You need one. If someone will ask you the hard question, questions. You know, discipline and, and spending time uh, doing holy good things and good works. Those are all great things. But in the end, it is only Jesus who can change our hearts. Union with Christ also. This happens because we are united to Christ. Which means that all that Christ has gone through can also be said of us. Not as if we did them, but because He did them in our place. Three times in two verses, we find the phrases, with Him or in Him. Just as He was buried and raised, so too these things are true of us. You know, when we become believers, when, when these um, Colossians, Gen, Gentile Colossians became Christians, something happened. If anyone is in Christ, 
He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Before we move on, though, let's, let's note the connection here between circumcision and baptism. Physical circumcision is no longer mandated now after the coming of Christ. But that doesn't mean that the promises that God made to the children in the Old Testament of believers, that suddenly those stop. You know, in the New Testament, we have an expansion of the promises of the Old Testament rather than a contraction. In the Old Testament, God gave to His people the sign of physical circumcision as kind of an engagement ring, for the, first of all, for the male children, uh, that He would be their God. Now, in the New Testament, this has been replaced by baptism. That's why we baptize our children. It is a sign and seal of God's promises, not just to us, but to our children. So we have this warning and a reminder. In verses 13 and 14, we have some of the most precious verses in Scripture about what Christ has done for us in our sins. Look at verses 13 and 14. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Brothers and sisters in Christ, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Not some of them, but all of them. Do you hear that this morning? Don't go looking somewhere else for something that only Jesus can give you and that He has already given you. This is what He did for you at the cross. We were dead. We were dead. We, we had a lively discussion in Bo's classroom this morning about this topic. We were dead, but God has made us alive together with Jesus, right? Because Jesus died and was raised, He applied what has happened to us through the Holy Spirit to us, of what happened to Christ has been applied to us. We were corpses. We might have looked nice and shiny on the outside. We might have had more... Um, Accolades hanging on our walls and anybody else on the block. But on the inside, we were dead. But God, out of His love and mercy, He has made us alive together with Christ. We who were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. Now, I think primarily this is talking about the fact that these were Gentile Christians who historically these Gentiles had no connection to the covenant people of God. But there's something bigger here. And that's that inside each and every one of us is this sinful nature. Even as a believer, I desire to do bad things, don't you? You put up a, a nice sign that says speed limit, 55. I'm doing 80, right? Or at least I want to. Why? Because my desires are twisted. Now before Christ saved me, I had no power over those things. But now He's given you and me a new heart. 
And he calls us, us to walk in his statutes, to desire to do good things. Because now, when I look at that 55-mile-an-hour sign, I say, oh, I want to go 80. And sometimes I do. But, but I know it's wrong. And I repent. <laughs> Until the next sign. He's forgiven all of our trespasses. Sometimes I think that we relegate to Jesus those sins which we don't see as real, really bad. He can handle those. But those really bad ones, I'm going to let that plague my heart forever and never get released from them. And that's not how Jesus wants it to be for you. That's, that's not. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Don't go back to a yoke of slavery. But we do it all the time, don't we? You know, the past doesn't exist. We, we've talked about that before. Like, actually, the past doesn't exist. There's no such thing as the past. There's a record of things that happened in the past. But it's not a living thing. But oftentimes we act as if it is a living thing that has continuing impact on me. That my sins, they're, they're still alive. That record of debt that stood against me with legal demands, that, that nothing's happened to that. I love the imagery here. In the days before paper mill and you needed to write your Walmart shopping list, you would take a, a wax tablet and a sharpened stick, and you would scratch into it the words. And you could, it, was, it, was, it was a genius thing. It was basically free. Uh, you could use grease, you could use wax, all sorts of things. You could use dirt. But when it was time to erase that, what you would do is you would just simply rub it with your thumb, and the heat of that friction would would melt the wax enough that it could smooth it out. And that's the Greek word that is used here of canceling the record of debt. The wax tablet, that the record of all the things that we have done wrong, and by the way, we will do wrong. Jesus has wiped it clean. And instead on that tablet, it has the record of all the things that he has done in his righteousness. That our record no longer bears our record, but Christ's record. How, how did he do it? You know, God can't just sweep our sin under the rug. Sometimes in our families, we pretend like things haven't happened. And by the way, that sometimes you, you got to deal with it. Sometimes you just got to deal with it. God has to deal with our sin. He's a righteous and holy God. So he didn't sweep it under the rug. Your actual sins were nailed to the cross. What does that mean? Well, in Roman days, when they crucified someone, they wrote their charges against them above their head, nailed to the cross. That's why Pilate had written above Jesus' head, the king of the Jews. But here we read that, that God nailed something else to that cross. And that, you know, Jesus was answering in some way to the Roman government. They're the ones that had the power to crucify him. And those were the charges that he had, they'd, they were chumped up charges that they could stick to him. But the charges against us are not against the state, but against God. And the sins, the, the, the charges against us, we have to answer to God for, and we cannot pay them. And so God nailed the record of those debts to the cross. The blood of Jesus wiped the slate clean. If you are in Christ, the offer is free to all who would call on Him. 
And I pray that the Holy Spirit would move in your heart if you don't know Him. That you would not bear your sins any longer. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. I love this verse. We've already read about rulers and authorities in verse 10. Here it's referring to uh, different angelic orders of demons. Demons are real. Um, Satan is real. He's out for your marriage. He's out for your family. He wants you to fail. He does not want you to love Jesus. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God, right? that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We should be aware of them, but not afraid. Why? Because in Christ, God has triumphed over every spiritual darkness. That's great news. We used to belong to that darkness. We used to be part of that darkness. We read in Colossians uh, 1-ish that, that He has transferred us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We used to love that darkness. We used to be part of that darkness. We reveled in the darkness. But no longer. We no longer have to fear those things. When a Roman general uh, defeated a powerful enemy, there would often be a days-long parade in Rome, displaying for all to see the gold and silver and art captured by the victorious general or emperor. Days long, stands be built, and people, everybody would, there wouldn't be any work, and everybody would just sit there and watch this long parade and jeer at all the Roman soldiers, I mean, all the foreign soldiers who had been captured, and all the slaves. And at the very end, do you know who came? It was the king, the defeated king, dressed in black and in chains. He was put to open shame and disgrace as he was led to his execution. That's the Greek word here, that he has triumphed over them in him. Christ has triumphed over darkness. Satan bruised our Savior's heel, but the Son of Man crushed the serpent's head. So we see a a warning and a reminder. As we know the reminders, we know the content of the good news of what Christ has done for us, we can see the counterfeits for what they are. Why would we look to anyone else for salvation? Christ is enough. Do you see Him as enough? Do you see Him as sufficient? There are several things that must happen first before you get to that point. First, you must realize that you need saving. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer because we're Presbyterians and we can't talk in the service. But do you see yourself as needing saved? If the answer is no, then come talk to me. Let's chat. And I'll tell you all about my sin. We won't even get to yours. And I'll tell you about all the reasons I needed saving. You must realize that there is a record of your moral debt that you will answer for on the day of judgment. It will come. You must realize that you can't fix it, and you can't pay for it. And it's when we get to that point that the good news of Jesus comes rushing in. Because, my friends, what we cannot do, Christ has done for us at the cross. If we are in Christ, then the wax tablet, the record of our debt, has been wiped clean.
clean by the blood of Jesus. And God now freely offers to take you from death to life, to give you a new heart, to forgive you of your sins, to welcome you home in heaven when you die. But you must ask for it. To see the guilt of your sin, ask forgiveness, repent of it. And ask Jesus to save you. You can't earn your salvation. He freely offers it to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the free offer of the gospel. We thank you for this warning and this reminder, Lord, that you would help us. Help us to be on guard, that we wouldn't be led captive by uh, human tradition, by deceit, by anything according to the elemental spirits, Lord, but that we would, our hearts be captivated by Jesus and that we would love him all the more. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Our final hymn is 493.